Listening to the sermon podcast from Real Life on the Palouse, reaching the world for Jesus, one person at a time. We've been in First uh, Corinthians for a while now. Hopefully, you feel like you're growing in this book and you understand Paul and his Roman world a little bit more. But we kind of—I didn't really touch on all of chapter seven uh, when I last spoke. Uh, got distracted of, as we were talking about porn and what that's doing to the world or to our community. Uh, but I want to touch on this a little bit more uh, of Paul in his Roman context. So what is Corinth again? If we've been doing this long enough, if you had to combine two cities, what would Cor- the, the city of Corinth be like? San Francisco and Las Vegas, right? This is Sin City. It's a port city. It's a port city, and it is buck wild there. If you were like a buck wild person, you wouldn't call him buck wild. You'd call him a Corinthian. That's like a slang, like dirty word for, for, oh, one of those Corinthians. And this is Roman soldiers, retired Roman soldiers that, that conquered death and beat up people and did all those things and freed slave people that are new rich all coming together in the Roman culture. And their culture is crazy. It would, make, it would make Las Vegas blush, right? And so as we dive into this, it's important that we have a contextual understanding what Paul is saying through his letters because he's writing to a group of people that's a new young church. It's a new young church trying to figure this thing out. So if you've been studying with us, you're like, wait a minute, I have more questions about chapter 7. They kind of skipped over that. Well, let's dive into it a little bit deeper here. I'm going to bounce around in chapter 7, uh, so it's not going to be as uh, regimented as normal, but I want, to, I want to dive into this. So let's think, I want to think about context and example. There's a, a, a violinist named uh, Joshua Bell, and he played at the Boston Symphony, and he played the most intricate pieces you could possibly play uh, at the Boston Symphony, uh, and it was the minimum ticket to get into this place was 100 bucks to hear this guy play. He plays on a $3.5 million violin. Apparently, it must be gold. I don't know. And so they did this experiment. He played, and you couldn't get, like, it's $100 was the minimum ticket to even just nosebleed to watch this guy play. And then he goes down into the, uh, uh, to the subway unannounced, and he plays for all these people coming by as they're going to work. And he's playing, he's playing his $3.5 million violin. He's rocking it. And he barely even gets noticed. Context is about where it was happening and who cares about it. Context is about where it was happening and who even cares about it. I want you to continue to think about some, some context So the Jewish church in Jerusalem, they had a law given to them at Mount Sinai. They had this thing called the Ten Commandments, and they had more laws. But they, the Jewish churches, they're looking, and some of them are converting to Christianity. They had a moral compass. Paul's church in Corinth, guess what their moral compass is? Roman culture. They don't even know what, 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 like there are some things, like you can't have sex with your stepmom. That's vile. Right? That's talked about. But their compass is a little bit different than Jews who are converting to Christianity in Jerusalem. And so this is a new group struggling with their moral compass. And they had been immersed in this culture. So Paul writes to them. 
So here's something in my Bible. It says, chapter 7, it says, concerning married life. Now, when I say marriage or married life, all of us kind of think the same thing. In Idaho, there's two kinds of marriages. There's common law marriage, and there's like the ceremony marriage that most of you guys have, have been involved in or seen, or you've been to, how many people have been to a wedding? Right? That's like a ceremonial marriage, right? And so common law marriage, so there's two kinds of marriages, and we don't even separate them that much. Would it shock you to know that in the Corinthians' mind, there's four kinds of marriages? There's four kinds of marriage in the Roman times. So one would be common law marriage. If you're living together uh, for a year, you're counted as common law marriage unless you took a three-day break and then you can come back. The second one is ceremonial marriage, which is what we know about, and it's usually for the upper class. So guess what? If you're here in America and you've had a ceremonial marriage, you would be upper class. You know that when they, uh, they say, marriage, marriage is what brings us together today. Anybody know that movie? Yeah. Bonus points. Prince is fried, right? Marriage. So uh, we're, we're here to join these, uh, this couple together in holy matrimony. Who knows what matrimony means when you haven't been to the class that I was at this week? The word matrimony literally means to make one a mother. That is why this thing is happening, because this person is going to be made a mother. And why would you want to to make one a mother? Because we need to populate the world. And in the Roman world, they needed more people. And so they wanted to populate the world. You know why they needed more people? Because they were discarding a lot of people. And so we kind of think of marriage, like when we think marriage, well, of course, every time he says married people in here, obviously that means what you and I think of marriage, because he's talking to us right now. Or was he talking to people in a different culture? The third kind of marriage was a sla- uh, slaves to produce slave marriage. It was called uh, tent marriage, pairing of slaves. And they did this to, 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 to basically breed better slaves and more slaves. And then the fourth kind of marriage, and you know, it's a fun exercise, and I've not done this all the way, but go through chapter 7 and try and figure out what type of marriage Paul is addressing as you go through all of these things. What marriage is he addressing here? The fourth type of marriage is called pleasurable service wife. A debtor's, you want to go to a debtor's prison, or do you just give your daughter over to the people that you owe money to? And uh, if you owed money to another Roman, you were unable to pay it in a debt, you could either go to debtor's prison or you could give, it to your, give your daughter to them to be taken as a pleasurable service woman. She could serve as long as seven years. It was considered a, a way of paying off someone's debt. So your daughter would be taken into this house, but she had to be taken in as a second wife to pay off your debts. We would call this sex trafficking, And who do you think Paul is talking to? Who are the leaders typically in a church or an organization? Would it be the really, really, really poor people who have no standing, or would it be the people that maybe have wealth? Usually it's people that have wealth, people that have means, right? And those people that have wealth and means might have wife number one and sex wife. And they have you know, childbearing wife, and they have 
So do you understand why when we read through this text and we're like, bah, you should, you should do this. Like we're trying to make it apply now that there's a chance for a little confusion. There's four kinds of marriage that Paul's addressing here. So these Corinthians, uh, they have a lot of questions. And start off in chapter 7, verse 1 through 3, it says, Now for the matters you wrote about, remember they wrote and asked him a question. Is it good for a man not to have sexual relations with his woman? So we're, we're Christians, but can we still have sex? Can we still do that? Can we, like what has to change now? Because we don't have a moral compass like these folks. What does it look like for us? Paul goes on to say, since sexual morality is occurring, which basically is Corinth, each man should have sexual relations with his own wives. doesn't say wives. Each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, singular, and each woman with her own husband, singular. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. It appears that there's a certain kind of marriage taking place in this church that Paul wants to address. And I think he's addressing the pleasurable service. And I want you to think about one thing that I've titled, I was retitling this message this morning, and I, uh, I was retitling it, uh, the rest of the story, chapter 7, the story in context, Paul fights like Jesus did to give dignity. God's people deserve dignity, all of his people. I want you to think about dignity as we're going on. So Paul's fighting for dignity. No, you can't have a pleasurable service wife. Do you think that that lovemaking was just this passionate, wonderful lovemaking when, he was, when it was somebody given to you as a toy? Probably not. Probably not. And that's probably not what God intended. So Paul goes on and he, 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 he talked to those who are in charge, those people who have power, and perhaps they're, like I said, sitting with their first and second wife there. And Paul says, I don't care what the Roman law says. I don't care if they owe you money. You don't get to abuse their daughter sexually. That marriage is not okay. Which would be a total shocker to them. Well, like, that's what we do. Wow, that's a big change we got to make. No, everyone should have their own wife. One plus one, not one plus two, three, four, five. Dignity, the quality or state of being worthy, honored or esteemed. So think about this question in your life as we're trying to apply the scriptures here. If, if Paul and Jesus fight to give dignity and we're supposed to be Christ-like, what should we fight for? To give people dignity. So as Christians, what does it look like to treat people with dignity? And there's a difference between dignity and respect. You treat people with dignity even when they don't deserve it. When they can't earn it. You give it away. You give away dignity because they are God's precious work. Romans had a class system similar to what we have. There's like the 3%, the 17%, and this percent, and, this, and then there's these, these. You know what they call the low class people? Humiliores. 
meaning humiliated or humble or meager. The Greeks called the, had a name for them that meant bad or worse. You as a human being are bad or worse. And this is the culture that they're in. There's this class system that Paul is fighting. Can you see why context matters? Jump down to verse six. Uh, he says, I say this as a concession, not as a command. And he's talking about people not being married. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has the gift, this gift, and one has that gift. Can you see Paul's like, I wish you guys were like me, not married, totally sold out to Jesus, getting beat up on missionary trips, getting whipped, chasing the gospel, talking to people about it, getting thrown in prison. No, thanks, Paul. I want to be Christ-like, but whoa. Why would he say that? Why would he say that? Because he understands the service to God and what's happening and how hard it is to serve God and serve man at the same time. Hey, you guys want to go on a missions trip to Guatemala for four months? Eh, I got this thing called a job. And I have this thing called a family. And I got this thing called like five or six kids. And they like to do this thing called eating. I guess you're out. Now to the unmarried, verse 8, and to the widowers, I say, it's good for them to stay unmarried as I do for service to God. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. What kind of marry do you think Paul's talking about? Oh, yeah, you should be a pleasurable service wife. You should be a slave, slave, slave wife. No, no, he's talking about marriage, the way we think of it. So in this context, this period in the Roman Empire, there's a rising tide of persecutions. There's this guy coming along named Nero. And so Paul's thinking about, like, if he, I don't know if God gave him a, a, a glimpse into the future, but he's like, it's going to be pretty hard to raise a family and have a wife and a kid and be tortured and butchered and crucified and thrown into a ring with lions for joy and entertainment and watch your son and daughter get eaten alive. Maybe that's why Paul is saying it's maybe good at this time as he's seeing for people not be married. Here's the other part of it, and I want to just address this quickly. Singleness is not a sin. There's nothing wrong with you if you're single. God may have called you to be single for a reason. You're not not some, like, the oh, it's the old spinster. She couldn't get married. No, 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 no. Singleness is not a sin. Now, we all can't be single or else none of us would be here. But singleness is not a sin. It's not, there's nothing wrong with you because you're single. There's actually a lot of things probably really right with you because you're married to the Lord in a mighty, mighty way. So Paul's telling those in Corinth, look, it's fine if you don't want to get married. He understands that there's problems ahead for new believers. Then he goes on in verse 10, he says, to the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. And Paul will say, I say this, or he'll say, the Lord says this. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must re- remain unmarried or else it would be, be reconciled to her husband. And a husband not, must not divorce his wife. There's a show called The Office, which is a great show. There's an American version of a guy named Steve Carell. Okay. And so uh, this is, this is, this, it'll make sense in a second. Um, so he comes out uh, during this one episode and he's trying to get his budget correct. And he's trying to get his budget correct. He's like, God, oh, it's a cool spreadsheet and all these things. He has no idea what he's doing with his money. 
And he's like, you're in trouble. And he comes out and he says, I declare bankruptcy. And the guy goes, the guy goes, you can't just say it and it happens. He goes, I didn't say it. I declared it. (laughs) Roman world could declare divorce like that. So Paul is addressing divorce here, but you got to understand the context in which the Roman world could could, uh, declare divorce. So divorce in ancient Rome, under the classical Roman law of marriage, um, the following principle, any man or woman who wished to do so could become divorced simply by sending the partner a letter or even by declaring it in front of a witness and that marriage was over. So Paul is saying, like, don't be throwing away marriage like that. Don't just throw away divorce and make it easy. Like, we we have to fight for marriage. This is the I pronounce you husband and wife marriage that Paul's discussing here. He's saying to them, uh, we Christians don't just throw away relationships when when it's getting tough. We fight for them. God expects it to be till death do us part. With that said, there's two, 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 two people that are involved in a marriage, correct? You have to do your part. If you've been divorced in here, this is not a shame sermon. God's not mad at you or angry at you. But you have to do your part in the marriage. You have to do your part. You try and reconcile things. You, you should never stay in an abusive, horrible uh, divo- uh, marriage. The community should get help. The community should come around that thing and see if it can be reconciled. And God does amazing miracles in marriages. He reconciles people. So don't take this as, oh, I'm a divorced. It's it's not a shame thing. Paul is fighting for dignity. He's fighting for dignity for the husband. He's fighting for dignity for the wife. He's fighting that we would look different. We wouldn't just throw away marriage like the Roman world does. Thank goodness we're not like that. Verse 12, now to the rest. I like that, I like this. To the rest I say this. I, not the Lord. If any brother or wife who, has, uh, who is not a believer and she is willing to live with them, he must not divorce her. You can't just divorce them because they don't think and believe like you when you came to the Lord later. And if the woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, he must not divorce him. You can't just throw it away if somebody comes to the faith or if your spouse walks away from the faith, you can't just discard them and throw them away because they don't think and believe like you do. Now, pause. Let's get in front of this. It is good to not be unequally yoked young folks who might possibly get married in the future. If God is a super big part of your life, which would be really cool if it was, and you're talking, it'd be like, hey, I love dogs so much. Dogs are like the biggest thing in the world to my life. I love dogs. Dogs are the greatest things and the person that you're talking to that you're considering married is like, nah, I'm a cat person. Pause. If you're like, I'm so passionate and fired up about the Lord. Like, I want to serve the Lord my whole life. We're going to tithe. We're going to be in a church. We're going to serve. We're going to do all these things. And like, I want to be fired up. I want to open the Bible together. I want to learn with you. I want to grow together. I want us to be tight. Nah. Might want to Pause on that relationship and do a little investigation on the front side. Does that make sense? But if you're already married and you got married, you know, 
uh, and, and you got married before you were believers or you're in that, you don't get to just throw it away because they don't believe like you. Politically, spiritually, you still got to, maybe, maybe you need to be, show them what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. And you got to pray, 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 pray. We talked to folks where their spouses walked away from the Lord. We talked to folks that, that it's not going well. Or they accepted the Lord and they've been married. Got to pray, 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 pray. Last part talks about verse 14 for unbelieving husbands and sanctified and all this stuff. And uh, at the very end, in verse 16, he says, how do you know your wife, uh, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Let me just tell you this up front. Uh, God does the saving. You cannot save anybody. God calls people to him and they have to choose to respond. Our job is to represent what God looks like well by treating people with something called dignity. Do we understand the difference between dignity and respect? Treating people with dignity, even when they cut you off, even when they don't get the scoreboard right, even when all those things, like we treat people with dignity. Paul would give this same answer, express great compassion to those in difficult situations and offer them encouragement regardless of their circumstances. God does the saving. God sees you, he values you, and he will be with you. Got to know what your part is. Finishing up here, uh, verse 21, and my Bible says, concerning, uh, status, uh, concerning the change of status. And so he goes on this talking about, do I need to be uncircumcised? Like, what do I need to do to fit into this thing? And, and Paul's like, you need to be right where God's called you. Keep God's, it's in verse, it says, keep God's commands. That's what counts. Let's start there. Why don't we just all roll back to the Ten Commandments and see if we can remember those ones and start with the Ten Commandments and work our way forward from there. I'm still stuck on love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind as your pastor. And love your neighbor as yourself. I'll be working on those for close to ever. It says, verse 24, brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Do I have to just, I got to just, everything's got to change. Well, there's some things that should change because he says, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So the make implies what? You don't have it all together. There's something that's going to change in your life. I know I didn't address everything here. There's uh, concerning the unmarried. And again, singleness is not a sin, uh, but I wanted to give a little uh, context around chapter seven and thinking about marriage and thinking about dignity and that Paul's fighting for the dignity of the people there. And he has to teach this church how to fight for dignity. Maybe something we can learn, learn from as well. How we treat people. So there's so much more to be said on this subject, divorce, remarriage, celibacy, slavery. Paul's addressing about 10 different topics here in chapter seven. And often his teaching is misunderstood. We don't understand the culture. We've used chapter seven to beat people up. That's not what the Bible's to be used for. We don't want to beat people up. We speak the truth in love, in relationship, in compassion as we're understanding it together. See, the text is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It was intended to deal with the the most hurting 
and vulnerable people in our body. We need to be super careful how we use it and as we dive in. And we should use it. You should dive in. God's heart breaks over every kind of divorce. But he is compassionate. He's loving. He restores marriage. He restores us. The church is here to help. It's God's design for restoration through his word, through his spirit, and through you, his people. Amen? Amen. Let's take this time and go to communion as we think about dignity and Jesus Christ and he died on the cross for dignity for us. And so if you're new with us, uh, we don't require you to be a member of this church, but if you believe that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, we want you to partake with us every week. We have Randy over here. If you don't have communion, raise your hand. We have gluten-free. Dwight needs him right there. Uh, we have gluten-free communion uh, as well. But we want to celebrate this. When we come to the table every week, we do it every week as a church because we're celebrating what God is. We want to bring it back to who Christ is. He is the ultimate one who, who provides dignity. So let's take this time and go into prayer. Father God, as we understand your word and are learning and growing, we ask that you just reveal to us, Father God, how we can be dignity givers like you've given dignity to us. Where it's more than just respecting somebody because they earned it, but it's going above and beyond that. Fighting for the defenseless. Seeking out the orphan, the alien, the widow, and that we would invite them into God's table, into God's family here. So Lord, I just ask that you would just bring to mind right now, if there's anything in our lives where we're just not providing dignity and let us go and fix that. Relationships, Lord, help us to to look at people through your eyes, that people aren't something to be used or discarded or thrown away, that they are your great, amazing treasure, that it's something that you crafted, that you are so, 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 so proud of. You knit them in their mother's womb, every single one of us in here. You knew what color hair we were going to have, what color eyes we were going to have, what decisions we were going to make, what heartaches we're going to go through. And you're intentionally putting people around us in our lives. So help us to come chase you in a mighty way. Let us see it your way, God, not our way. Our way is the Roman way. It is so Roman. About power and might and who's better and who has more status and bigger class. That's not what you modeled. You, your very self, Jesus, came down and you were with the lepers. You were with the, you were with the prostitutes, the tax collectors. You, you came down and you hung out with what we would consider the lowest of the low. And you fought for them to have dignity. So help us to do the same. Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and when he had given thanks, uh, he, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember what he did for us. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. This cup is the covenant of my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it and remember it for me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you are proclaiming the Lord until he comes again. You are proclaiming that you are a dignity giver. Let's proclaim it. Father God, thanks again. Thanks for opening up your word to at least me. Letting us see um, what it looks like to follow you. 
compassionately, to care, to try and see people through your eyes a little bit. Thanks for giving us Paul and all the letters that he gave us and the heartaches and the trials and tribulations he went through, the beatings and giving his life. So we could be talking about it 2,000 years later. Father God, I ask this would be a time of encouragement that we leave this room and we look for ways to give dignity and it's on our hearts in a mighty way. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by visiting liferotp.com and connecting with us on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, have a great week.